our goal has always been just-in-time optimization, um, to use a compiler term. What we didn't want to do is because we're a payment network, right? Like there are our customers have a very low tolerance for uh, resiliency and reliability issues. One of the most amazing things that people like Visa and Mastercard have done over their lifetimes is set the bar so high. So, as an early stage business, there are requirements on us that usually aren't on other types of businesses, right? Like if you're a customer of a seed stage business with 20 employees, oh, if it goes down every now and then, you kind of understanding. That understanding does not exist in payments. My name's Joe Peterson. I'm the CTO at Bank. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laplark, and today how Joe Peterson is creating real-time payment possibilities built on top of modern banking rails. All this and more on Code Story. Joe Peterson is quite the renaissance man with many interests and ventures he's a part of. He's also had an interesting path to tech. He was originally a lawyer many years ago. Funny enough, because he thought that after the dot-com bubble burst, that people weren't going to make money writing software again. He hated it, though, and left the legal profession as soon as he could. He's a collector by nature with over 100 pairs of sneakers, most of which are Jordans, and several mechanical keyboards. Alongside these hobbies, he has started a few nonprofit organizations, one around equipping young men and another around educating people in the digital world. Finally, he's writing a book around scaling engineering teams, which is actually going to be given away for free. It should be published in June or July of this year, 2022. Back in January 2020, Joe joined his current venture prior to raising their seed round. Having gotten regulated in the UK, they were ready to deploy the first product and find their product market fit. And in doing so, he went about optimizing team process and built a platform strategically ready for change in the payment space. This is the creation story of Banked. Banked's a business with a pretty ambitious goal. And that goal is to build a payment network. And when you think about payment networks, you probably think about cards, the little bits of plastic that sit in your pocket. These systems and these tools that were built in the 1950s and 60s and 70s to really innovate and put the ability to for cashless payments into anybody's pockets. But the thing that you also probably realize is that those things were invented in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And so there are inherent challenges in their application, there are commercial models, they're expensive for merchants. There's a bunch of things that have become inherent in the way they've been built or inherent in the way they've been deployed. And so what Banked wants to do is to say, well, what would happen if you were to build a payment network in 2022? How would you authorize? How would you incentivize users to choose it, right? How would you give people points and rewards? How would you give merchants the best possible experience? Because the big lesson that we've learned that the industry is learning at the moment is that power is shifting away from payment networks like Visa and MasterCard to merchants. Merchants are the ones that own the consumer experience. They own the consumer relationship. And so as a payment network, we need to do everything that we can to increase conversion, 
to reduce costs and generally just to provide a much better service to merchants than they've currently been able to expect. So Bank, we're a, a, an A-stage business. We just actually just announced a raise of $20 million led by Bank of America. And Bank of America are particularly important to us because as you'd imagine, having an organization as strategically important as Bank of America as part of this journey um, really helps us. And also there's a really nice marketing story in that uh, Bank of America created the concept of Visa. They created cards. There's a nice, there's a nice narrative there. If they were there in the beginning of cards, and now they're here in the beginning of this new payment method. And the way we do it is that uh, we enable people to make payments directly out of their accounts, kind of disintermediating cards. So, so the money moves not via car rails, but directly in the US via things like RTP. In the UK via things like faster payments or SEPA instant in Europe. So I said, we've got some super exciting customers. We're growing super quickly. The team's doubled in size, I think, in the last three or four months. We're about 75 people now as a business. We're completely remote. So I think we're in 14 or 15 countries. I joined in January 2020. Considering COVID and everything else feels about 86 years ago, but I'm assured was just over two years at this point. And I joined just as the company was about to raise its seed round. We've got we've gotten regulated. We're a regulated entity in the UK and Europe, um, and so we got regulated in the UK. And we really needed to start to deploy the product, right? To build the first version, to try and find product market fit. Like, what exactly were what exactly were the set of features and products that would make this compelling for a merchant, or make this compelling for a a, a partner of ours like Bank of America? And that's kind of the journey that we went on. We shipped a bunch of products. We optimized our team and our technology and our just ways of working on our culture for to suit a seed stage business, right? So to focus on quick iteration, to focus on empowering kind of individual engineers to be really productive and to get stuff done and to try a bunch of new things with product. And as we found that product market fit, as we found these really exciting opportunities with merchants and partners, now we're on the journey that kind of goes beyond that, right? We're to actually build and continue to iterate on and continue to make even more resilient and reliable and deep the products that we are, that we've built and we take to market. And so the culture shifts, the technology shifts, the product shifts. And as I said, we're, we're, we're pretty far along that journey now. Well, tell me about the MVP, and maybe that's when you joined, or if you know about it before you joined, or wherever you take the story, but tell me about that first product. How long did it take to build, and what sort of tools were used to bring it to life? It's really illustrative of quite how far our product evolved to actually find kind of product market fit. We always kind of knew that payments were going to be the core focus of the business. That's been that's been sort of the, the, one of the canonical kinds of North Stars uh, since its inception. But actually how you enable that and what exactly that looks like from a developer experience point of view, from a consumer point of view, has changed quite a lot. And so when I think back to the earliest points of Banked, it was really a mobile-focused small business and merchant conversion tool. This kind of thing where you'd have an app on your phone as a small business if you're a retail store 
could actually start to take payments for via an app on their phone. So you could charge one of your customers $70 for a particular service or for some products and they could get a link on their phone and they could use their bank account to pay for it. We thought this was a really interesting way of us really quickly iterating the product, right? Because we knew that ultimately large merchants were going to find this product really compelling. But you'd imagine if you go to Nike and you're like, actually, we're going to ship a product to you that no one's ever really used before. We haven't really iterated that much. You can imagine the kind of reaction that you're going to get. We wanted to find a mechanism with our first version where we could dog food our products, we could dog food our APIs, we could dog food our SDKs, and we could actually get that into people's hands. We could see how do consumers react as part of our checkout process? Like, how can we iterate it and make it better? How can we make the developer experience for implementing our products better? Because ultimately, while Banked is a fintech business, we're a payments business, when it comes right down to it, we're a developer tools business, right? Like we ship SDKs and APIs and libraries and technical documentation. Those are the artifacts of things that we ship. And the lesson that Stripe taught the payments industry so acutely is that the developer experience of your product is one of, if not the largest leverage point that you have. And so this ability for us to be able to test that and iterate it first time around was really important. So we built an iOS app, we shipped it into the store uh, and it consumed all of the kind of backend APIs that we built. And we started building those APIs in Rails. It's a very powerful tool to be able to reach for, for being able to like capture ideas and ship them really quickly to your customers and do it in a way that has a really powerful ecosystem, right? So there are tools and libraries that you can reach for. That's kind of where our MVP started, right? We had we had this Rails app that had a bunch of functionality in it with kind of Postgres and Redis, as you'd imagine. And we deployed that onto Heroku, right? To try and get things out there as quickly as we could to try and say, all right, how can we iterate this and make it better? Because we knew actually we don't have the monopoly on good ideas and we need people to use it and to test it. And that's the kind of place we ended up with. And we iterated that a bunch, added a bunch of new features, added a bunch of new technology. But ultimately that was kind of the heart of where we started. I can hear your passion about the products and about what you've built. With the MVP, right, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs. And, and you kind of you touched a little bit on some of those as, as you went about building it, but I want to give space for a full answer. So tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs that you had to make when you were building your MVP, and, you know, whether it be like you know, feature cut or technical debt or anything like that. And how did you cope with those decisions? I don't think I have a simple answer to that question. I think that it was a long and sort of complicated process, I think. Just because, like, when we thought about the product in that sense and the kind of features that we built, we wanted to maximize kind of lowercase a agility in our product, right? We, we wanted to be able to react to opportunities from customers or to opportunities from partners. And that was kind of influenced a bunch of the decisions that we made, right? So keeping things as simple as possible in Rails enabled us to be able to do that, to be able to quickly ship new features, to build tooling that was conducive to individual engineers on what was quite a small team at the time to be able to kind of own things end to end so that an engineer can have an idea and come up with a salesperson or somebody in product and can take it and ship it 
in a way that is kind of conducive to that kind of lowercase a agility. So that was a bunch of the decisions that we made. Let's kind of keep it, keep it simple so that ultimately our team and our product and our engineers didn't need to fight the technology. The, the technology that we were using and the decisions and architectural decisions that we made were conducive to actually getting out of the way. Now, obviously, as we've kind of moved on, a bunch of those values have changed and we've made some very different technology decisions, but ultimately that was really valuable for us because it enabled us to do things like to partner with Xero, the accounting software, and we could react to that and ship and integrate with Xero in a really small amount of time, right? It took us almost no time to be able to ship it and get it done. When the opportunity with Bank of America came up, those same values of how can we focus on this and get it done and ship it really quickly and effectively, like really enabled us to be able to do those things. So, okay, you got your MVP. You mentioned earlier, we sort of changed how we make decisions. Now, tell me about that. Tell me about how you progressed the product and matured it and built your roadmap. And, and specifically in, the, in terms of how do you decide what the next most important thing to build is? What we realized is that with the very large customers and partners, Bank of America being one of them, like a very large bank, the requirements and kind of non-functional requirements that we had for architectural design and the way that we shipped products and the way that we wrote code needed to pretty profoundly evolve. There were requirements for things like security and compliance that as a business we had already obviously worked on because we needed to take that stuff seriously from the beginning, but it needed to have a new level of focus and need to have a new level of investment. And so as we've gone down that journey, we're breaking out services from our kind of Rails monolith to more easily enable, enable us to meet the very high levels of kind of resiliency and reliability and security and compliance that are necessary for a payment network. What we've done is not try to do a kind of boil the world. We're going to stop everything that we need to be able to, that we've done in order to be able to kind of completely re-architecture the platform, but to take a much more pragmatic approach and say, actually, where are the opportunities that we have as we build new products, as we build new features, as we do new things to be able to build a more resilient, reliable, secure, scalable architecture. And so that a classic example of this is moving from Heroku to GCP and actually enabling us to get a much wider set of <laughs> knobs to turn in order for us to be able to meet the kind of SLOs and SLAs that an organization like Bank of America would expect. That has implications for the way we think about architecture, right? We think about security in a new way. We do bring your own keys and HSMs in a way that two or three years ago in the business wouldn't have been something that was higher priority for us. That journey has been an incremental one, but the speed at which we've been able to achieve it is something I'm actually very proud of the team for doing. As the team's grown, as the engineering team's 35, 40 people now, we can actually have the, the, the capacity and the bandwidth to be able to make some of these really deep um, changes to our platform in a really kind of safe, reliable, uh, secure and scalable way. Well, let's switch to team then. So how did you build your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I think that the people journey is broadly analogous to the technology journey in many ways, in that the kind of experience, the kind of culture to optimize for at an early stage 
pre-seed and seed stage business is very different to that of a post-A stage, B, a B round and growth stage business. And ultimately, that journey is one of kind of generalism to specialism. Early in our uh, in our journey, hiring people onto the team who were technology generalists, who could work on front-end user experience, who could build APIs, who could build back-end services, who could help us with ops, so that ultimately the, the groups of people that we could put together to work on things could be independent, right? We, we could work in teams of one and be able to, to do things in parallel and to do things really quickly and have build a culture that was kind of an ownership culture, right? Which was to say, I'm going to take this on and I can push this thing through. And I can have all of the context of this thing in my head at one point and I can take ownership of it throughout the process. Now, obviously that's still important to us, but as the complexity of things that we've done has grown, as the number of things we do concurrently has grown, it's just not possible for one human to be able to maintain that level of information in their brain. It's not something humans are very good at. And so that journey of specialism has kind of come in where we've hired people with more specific skills, right? Rather than sort of generalists, building a team of SREs is a great example of this. Hiring platform engineers whose job is to actually build tooling and libraries and an ecosystem, a developer ecosystem internally at Bank to enable other teams. Whereas before that might have been something that one of our uh, more generalist engineers would take on day to day. And so that culture of generalism to specialism is a journey that, that all engineering teams take, but has been one that's been particularly valuable at Banked because it's enabled us to, as I said, go on that technology journey of kind of something that was massively optimized for one use case of like iteration, trying to find product market fit to something where we've now found product market fit and we need to go super deep as a business on the technology that we build. Let's flip to scalability, and this will be interesting. Did, did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or have you been fighting this as you've grown and gained traction? We've tried to do the impossible thing and tried to do both. <laughs> um, it is an impossible task, but our goal has always been just-in-time optimization, um, to use a compiler term. What we didn't want to do is because we're a payment network, right? Like there are our customers have a very low tolerance for uh, resiliency and reliability issues. One of the most amazing things that people like Visa and MasterCard have done over their lifetimes is set the bar so high. So as an early stage business, there are requirements on us that usually aren't on other types of businesses, right? Like if you're a customer of a seed stage business with 20 employees, oh, if it goes down every now and then, you kind of understanding. That understanding does not exist in payments. If our customers can't process payments, they can't make money. And that's a, one of the most important critical parts in their business. So because of that, we could never fall into that we'll fix it when it breaks model, simply because if it breaks, that's a problem that could be existential for us as a business. That's something that we couldn't really deal with. But on the other hand, what we didn't want to do was to build a, a Formula One car of a platform from a scalability point of view that wouldn't necessitate the level of scale, that wasn't necessitated by the level of scale that our customers were at. So the challenge for us has been making smart decisions, trying to be pragmatic to stay ahead of the curve, to proactively address technical debt in a really um in a really sort of systematic way so that we can actually like um, really focus on where we need to invest and for a, a, an example of one of ways to be able to do this effectively is investing very early 
in automated load testing, for example. So in a way that we can build very sophisticated simulations uh, that we can use to project against growth. So we can say, all right, well, if we talk to our sales team and our sales team says we're going to have this number of uh, payments in the next six months, we can be ahead and we can start to optimize for that level of traffic in a way that obviously it, it, we're not unique in being able to do that. But for a business at our stage a year or two ago, um, um, is, isn't that massively usual. There's a the classic expression that like when you're teaching something, you need to stay two pages ahead of your students. And that's something that we like, that, that's kind of how we thought about scalability, where we want to answer those questions as pragmatically as possible without risking or sacrificing the reliability or resiliency of the things that we do. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? The honest answer to this is the culture of Banked. There's an openness, there's a transparency, there's an inclusivity. It's the thing that like, like brings a huge smile to my face um, when you see it sort of uh, in behaviors every day. So that's, that's the, my definitive answer to that question. When I think about products and when I think about the technology that supports them, I think that what we've been able to do, and I think one of the things that's been most effective for us is there's this thing when you build global payments the variety of implementation details of payments in the uk or italy in the us is enormous how it works the, the specific fields the metadata it varies enormously and so one of the biggest challenges that payment networks get into when they scale globally is they accrue an enormous amount of technical debt around the differences between the geographies where they operate so you can imagine a very simplistic example of this is that in your code somewhere you'll have if market equals Italy. And what that does, as I'm sure people can understand, is massively proliferate the number of code parts that exist in your platform, right? And so when you want to ship new products, when you want to go into new territories, you have to account for that difference. And if you don't control that in a really explicit way, it just slows you down. And you end up with a very complicated kind of big ball of mud. One of the things I'm most proud of from a technical sense is um, the internal abstraction that we have for payments. This idea to say very early on that our payments team had this philosophy of saying there will be a single internal abstraction. And that will be true for the UK, anywhere in Europe, the US or anywhere else. So that means everybody else in our product teams who make those payments and consume those APIs they can code against one interface. They can code against one abstraction. And so in theory, that proliferation of market differences can be massively reduced in impact. And I think that as we scale globally, that's the thing that's had the most profound impact on our technology, I think. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. One of the things that is not going to be unique to banked, but I think that what we haven't always got right is the amount of investment that we make with time versus the impact of that investment. You can imagine in a perfect scenario, in the, the dream scenario where you spend all of your effort on things that have the most impact for you as a business, right? Like the, the, the dreams know. Now we all recognize that we're all human beings and that's, that's not the way the world works. With the benefit of hindsight, I'd look back and say, you know what? Like we probably could have done, we could have done a more minimal 
solution to this problem, right? We could have taken a shorter road. Or sometimes the other way, that like there are some things we could look back at and say, you know what, if we if we spent a little bit more time on that the first time we did it, that ultimately we wouldn't have to come back and look at it again now in quite the same way. One of the key things about our platform is uh, incentives and rewards, right? So we want to give you as a consumer, so Noah, if you see uh, pay by bank or banked at checkout, we want to give you rewards and incentives, right? So that could be airline miles. It could be carbon offset, uh, the thing that you're purchasing, right? There's a bunch of different options there. We did that because we had this product hypothesis there with increased conversion. And it turns out it really does. And it's become a really important part of our product. When we first looked at that, we started with a particular partner who didn't give us the nicest interface for actually how to give our customers those rewards, right? It was kind of old fashioned. It was kind of legacy. And we spent a lot of time working around the legacy implications for that integration with them. Not because it would actually add customer value, but because the way that we integrated with this partner was just challenging and the way they, the thing they exposed wasn't great. And so with hindsight, right, we could have said, you know what, we need to just prove this as a concept. Maybe there's a world in which we don't need to go and focus on some of those very obscure edge cases. Because ultimately, now, now we've come back to this partner and we've got much further down the road. They've come back and said, you know what? We're going to actually completely change the way you integrate with us and give you a much better optionality. So there could have been a world in which we could have spent less time actually working through some of those edge cases and more time focusing around, well, actually, what's the best? How can we like have most impact with this particular reward for our customers and for their customers. So that's kind of just one example, but they're like, I, I, I suspect everybody in my position has these things to say. With hindsight, I think we probably could have made a different kind of ROI decision on some of the places where we spent time. Well, this will be fun to ask. I always enjoy asking this question and hearing the answers. So what does the future look like for the product and for your team? Banked is... Um, as a payment network, we need to be a global business. We work with very large tier one merchants, and they say things like they say things to us like we operate in 120 countries, and so banked, you need to operate in 120 countries as well. That's a real vector for us as an organization of actually how do we continue to enable these kinds of account-to-account payments in not just in Europe and the US, but in South America, in East Africa, in Southeast Asia, in East Asia, in Australia and other places. And that's a real kind of vector as we move forward. And that has profound implications for the technology that we build, the products that we build and others. That's kind of one thing. The second thing is... Ultimately, we're in the business of conversion, right? We're a payment network. The, our core goal is to convert as many people as possible from browsers to buyers. What can we do for our merchants um, and for our customers to m- increase their conversion as much as possible? So almost like think, I almost think about it as like a horizontal and a vertical, right? So from a horizontal point of view, we need to get global scale as a business. But from a product point of view, we need to ship more products in more in more countries to enable that kind of conversion optimization and that top line growth for our merchants so both of those are really exciting they're both really hard things to do we've got like a a long hard road ahead of us but as i said it's a it's a journey that's a really exciting one 
let's switch to you, Joe. Who influences the way that you work? Name a you know CEO, CTO, architect, really any person that you look up to and why. One of the things that has always resonated with me. So please don't judge me too harshly for this. I was at McKinsey and Company for a while. I was, <laughs> no, no I, was um, I was an associate partner there. And it's an amazing organization in many ways. But there was a senior partner called Kate Smage, um, who now runs digital analytics at McKinsey. There's a thing that she did that had a really profound impact on me as a leader in that we were in a we were in a we were in a meeting and we were talking with our client and Kate was the old she was a senior partner, she was the ultimate leader of this engagement. There was quite a junior person at McKinsey. He was a very new business analyst. He was fresh out of an MBA. He, he, he didn't have much experience. And during this meeting, we were problem solving. We were trying to work out an answer to this particularly thorny question this customer had. And I, I was there working with the team. And one of the other people in the team kind of ran over the junior person a little bit, right? They, kind of, they were a bit dismissive of their contribution. They were a bit dismissive of their ideas. And Kate stopped the meeting. She made the very explicit point to include this junior person, to make sure that their ideas were heard, that actually if there was feedback that they could be given about their ideas and the, th the things they were thinking about, that she took the time to do that. And it really struck with me. She did that a lot. And that's one of the things that, like, that has always most influenced me as a leader because, I mean, tritely it can sometimes be called servant leadership i don't think that's necessarily a, a great way of describing it but ultimately my job is to hire the best group of people that i can and build the best environment for them to be successful and for me that includes taking the responsibility i have to make sure that everyone is included in that process really seriously it wasn't the first time I'd seen that in my career, but it was something that really struck me and like really stayed with me. And it's something I try to think of quite a lot when I'm leading myself and when I'm trying to mentor other leaders. Um, to try and to, that inclusion, that making sure people are included, their voices heard, that um, people who maybe typically wouldn't be included um, in those kinds of conversations are uh, feel valued and feel part of that process. We talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? And, and it may be the thing that you mentioned, because I do recall you saying that there may have been a, a bigger ROI for going back there. But let's see, let's see what you say. I think this is, a, this is a very easy question to answer in hindsight, right? We could spend, I think, three or four hours talking about all the things that if I had a time machine, I think I'd go back and do differently. One of the things that I would certainly say I would kind of go back and go and do differently is start to grow the engineering leadership team at Banked sooner than we did. In the last six months, um, we've had a VP engineering join us, Adi Topaz, and she's had such a profound impact on the engineering team, the culture, the way we do things that it feels like I kind of sit there and think, wow, I wish I'd done that earlier. I wish that we'd been able to find Addie and bring her in earlier during this journey because I think that she'd have had even more impact um, in the things that she's doing. So in that sense, like that's certainly something that in hindsight, I think I would have done a little bit earlier. Last question, Joe. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. 
They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I, I founded a, uh, an investment fund called Haven't Park. And so I do a bunch of kind of pre-seed, seed stage investing and a bunch of advisorship for kind of um, companies we've invested in. I think I'd give them the same advice I give to lots of founders, particularly technical founders, which is your organization is going to look different constantly, month to month, week to week, quarter to quarter. It's going to profoundly change. Really, the only thing that you can optimize for as a leader is change. You can optimize to build an organization that culturally, structurally, and in every other way is optimized to be different, is optimized for things to adapt and to change. Because the reality is that the most successful seed stage business is going to completely fail as a B round business that's in its growth stage. And so optimizing for change is one of the most valuable things that you can do. And that, that comes down to the people that you hire, the expectations that you set for people when they join the business and you talk about the kind of road and the journey you're going to go on together. But broadly, it's also about communication, right? Because change is scary for humans, right? As businesses grow and people's roles change and new roles pop up and new opportunities pop up. And that can be really frightening, right? Like humans are, we're, we're, we, tend to, we tend to be scared of change. But being open and transparent and keeping your team together and on the same page, oversharing, right? Feeling like, I feel like, uh, like I should keep some of this to myself or I shouldn't expose the team to this. My experience is that being more open, sharing things, being more transparent is almost never the wrong answer. I think that's great advice. Well, Joe, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Banked. Thanks. It was great fun. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.